If you please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 6. Our text this morning is Job chapter 6, and our text is verses 22 through 30, so 22 through the end of the chapter. I'd like to begin reading back at verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? You think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? It's a wonderful thing that we have a God who is all-knowing. His comprehensive knowledge means that we can trust what he says in his word about us, about himself, about the world. His omniscience, which is the word we use to refer to his infinite knowledge, means that he is aware of even all of the evil and injustices that are taking place in this world. And so he's not going to allow any wickedness to go unpunished. And it's amazing and comforting to know that with all of the disagreements that go on in this world, God knows who is right. And one day he will set everything straight. There are those who have insisted they are right about some issue but are actually wrong. It may be that we are the ones who are wrong in our assessment of some things and God will one day set everything straight. He alone can sort it all out. He alone has the authority and the ability to declare who is right and who is wrong. And we will see that at the end of Job, at the end of this book, when the Lord sets everything straight. But in the meantime, we have this kind of debate that goes on between Job and his friends. And uh, chapter 6 and 7 provide a record of Job's first response to his friend Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the first of Job's three friends to speak. And uh, now that Eliphaz has spoken his mind, Job is responding. By the way, I'd remind you that the main outline for the book of Job is a cycle that repeats itself three times. So Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, will each take a turn speaking. And after each one speaks, Job will give his own speech and answer. And this will go on three times, though in the final third cycle, Zophar doesn't have a speech. 
But after three cycles of speeches, Job's will give, Job will give a long final appeal. Then a fourth speaker, Elihu, will show up. The book ends with God speaking to all of the men, and then Job giving a short final speech in response. So that brings us to the question, well, where are we in the broad outline of the book of Job? Where are we this morning? We are, well, we are considering Job's first response to Eliphaz. And we've already considered the first part of chapter 6, where Job is expressing vexation over how God has been treating him. And coming to verse 14, and from there, the rest of chapter 6 has to do with Job's disappointment with his friends. We consider it as one of the points of this section, the responsibility that Job's friends have to treat him with godly love. Um, as a second point, we consider this illustration that Job uses of a dried up stream, uh, stream bed to show how barren their comfort has been. We spent some time considering the accusation that Job makes that his friends see his calamity and yet are afraid. And uh, that's in verse 21. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. It was suggested that there are probably two main ways that they are afraid. Uh, first, they're afraid to face the reality that maybe perhaps they haven't had, haven't figured everything out in terms of the relationship of God to suffering and the application of their beliefs to Job. They're afraid to face the fact that perhaps their beliefs might not be adequate to assess Job's situation. And second, they're afraid to get involved with someone that they believe is under the curse of God. They're convinced that if they show love to someone that God is cursing, they're going to mar their reputation as those who do not take sin seriously. And they also don't want to give Job the wrong impression, thinking that if they show love to him, it's going to lead him to think that sin is no big deal. So that's what we've considered so far. Now we come to a third and final point for chapter 6, which is Job's request. His friends have failed to be loving and comforting, and so Job responds with a request. He actually begins by setting forth what he's not requested. Um, he wants them to understand there are some things he says I've not requested, and he uses rhetorical questions to make his point. This is verses 22 and 23. He says, have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? By these questions, Job is saying to his friends that he doesn't expect them to restore him to his previous condition. His request is not an earthly request that he get back all of his wealth. He doesn't want their wealth. He, he, he doesn't want the use of their wealth to help him. He's never asked for that kind of help. And Job wants his friends to think about, I believe that he's here wanting them to think about, then why did they come? Um, what is their purpose? Uh, they supposedly came to comfort him, and yet he says they're afraid to help him. So then why are they there? It's not because he requested that they come. It's not because he was hoping they might use their money to give him a new start or to negotiate on his behalf with the Sabaeans or these Chaldeans, these enemies who stole his livestock. His friends came voluntarily. They came saying that they were there to comfort him, and he's perfectly good with that. His only request of them at this point is that they will speak to him words of comfort as they said they would. 
He's not selfishly demanding anything of them, but what they themselves said they came to give. And since they came for the purpose of offering him comforting words, he's requesting now that they get at it. And so he plays with them in verse 24, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. So he wants them to teach him. He wants them to help him understand what he's done wrong because words of truth, upright words have um, a great impact when they're properly applied. He welcomes reproof from his friends as long as what they have to say is truth and can be proven to be applicable to him. But that's exactly right what he challenges. He challenges how they've treated him. He challenges whether or not their words to him have been upright. For one thing, he goes on to accuse them of contradicting themselves. On the one hand, they have been reproving Job by telling him that they disapprove of how he has been speaking and how he's been acting, which means that their stance toward him is really that they've taken his words and his actions seriously. They've taken the time to evaluate what he has said. They've, in fact, criticized him for it. But on the other hand, and here's the contradiction, they consider his speech as a despairing man to be wind, which means that they consider his words to have no significance. So which is it? If his words are only wind, then why reprove him? And there's actually wisdom in taking what a despairing person says as wind. By saying someone's words are wind, you're saying that these are words that just float away. They don't have lasting significance. If a person's words are wind, you don't take what he says very seriously. And it's wise to remember that a person who is going through a hard time is likely going to say things in the emotion of the moment that later he's going to regret. Or he may say things that he doesn't even remember later doesn't even himself remember saying them because he wasn't logically thinking through what he was saying, but he was simply speaking impulsively out of his agony. It's not uncommon for someone who is stressed out and agitated, as Job certainly was, to say things that are rash and to to say things that are not even really his convictions. The person is not himself because of what he's going through. And if you're talking with someone like that, you ought not to take everything that they say literally or, or to the... Or to the extreme, you should show you should uh, show some grace. You should give a despairing person some latitude. Let that person calm down. Let him speak when he's back to himself before evaluating what he truly believes. But meanwhile, the men who have come to Job certainly do not think that their words are are wind. Right? They consider themselves to be men of wisdom, great wisdom. They are men of upright words, so they think of themselves. And yet in verse 27, Job describes them quite differently. You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. And the Hebrew verbs here in parallel that are translated as cast lots and bargain over, they can be taken in two different senses. Um, Both are not complimentary. Both are strong criticism of Job's friends as doing the opposite of being friends. One way of translating these verses is what we find in the ESV and most of the English translations. And the idea is that an orphan needs a home. Several families are interested in taking him in, but it's not out of mercy, but rather that the orphan might be put to work uh, in the household as a slave. 
And because several families are wanting to claim the child, lots are cast, bargaining is carried out to determine an outcome agreeable to all. And you understand that the outcome is not agreeable to the child, who's only a pawn in all of this, but we're talking about whatever's agreeable to the bargainers. That's one scenario. Another scenario is that a father goes into debt with several debtors and then subsequently dies. And his children are at the mercy of these multiple debtors who cast lots for the possession of the child as a slave. And they bargain over an agreement where all will recover a share of compensation. But again, the child is viewed as a mere pawn to the ends of these people casting lots. That's one way to look at this this text in the Hebrew. There's a translation that also takes the Hebrew in its more literal and common usage. And the translation would be something like this. And it's it's very different, I understand, but this is this is possible in the in the Hebrew as well, where it would say, You would even attack the fatherless and dig a pit for your friend. Um, the verb uh, the first verb used there means literally to fall or to fall upon, uh, depending upon the particular verb form, and uh, is a word that can refer to an attack where soldiers fall upon an enemy or even the falling upon prey with a net. And the second verb literally means to dig, which it could be the digging of a well, but in parallel to this falling upon an enemy could be referring to the digging of a pit, such as would be used to trap a wild animal, where, you know, they cover the top of the pit and try to trick the animal into falling in. But whichever translation you prefer, the end result is the same. Job is this orphan who is being mistreated. Job is being used as a pawn by his so-called friends. He's simply a tool of their agenda, which, is, which means that he is, in their minds, a way by which they can exalt themselves as men of wisdom. They're there to show off. They're there to make themselves look and feel good. This is not about Job. This is not about caring for him. In fact, what is happening to him is cruel. Job is a person that, like an orphan, should receive compassion and mercy. Think of it, he's lonely, he's bereaved. He is like an orphan in that he has lost members of his family. He's literally lost his children and appears that he even has lost fellowship with his wife. And rather than giving him comfort and help, his friends are trying to trap him in his words. It's like they're digging a pit to trap him. They're there to judge him. They're there to over-evaluate everything he says and bring him down on the basis of anything questionable that he might say. So they view him as he sees it. He's like, I'm your enemy. I'm your prey. At the very least, he's not in their reckoning a helpless orphan who deserves mercy. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary, paraphrases Job as saying something like this, You do not love me. I'm just a pawn in your religious discussions. You're playing a game with me. You're rolling dice. You're tossing the, quote, problem of Job, unquote, to and fro as you sift your coffee in comfort, end quote. And what follows then is Job calling on his friends to stop playing games with him. He's saying, treat me as a real person. Take what I say seriously. So we come to verses 28 through 30. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? 
Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? So notice Job, first of all, says to his friends, look me in the face. He wants them to stop talking about him and just at him like they have everything figured out. He wants them to talk to him in a real conversation where they take the time to really listen to him. Because if you want to really hear what a person is saying, you look that person in the face as they talk to you. That's what Job is asking them to do. It's an illustration as an example. Have you ever had it, parents, where you are instructing your children, and as you're doing so, your, your children are involved in something as you talk, and maybe they're playing, maybe they're working, and at the end of your spiel, you, you probably say something like, okay, or do you know what you're supposed to do now? And the child says yes, but then later things don't happen as you planned. And the child doesn't do what you wanted, and when you ask them about it, they, they end up saying, well, they didn't remember hearing your instruction." And the problem is that they were preoccupied with whatever work or play was going on as you spoke to them, and they weren't really listening. And so you've probably learned from that that if you want to make sure your children do what you want them to do, especially if it's very important that they do something, you will say to them, look at me. Stop what you're doing for a moment and look me in the eye, and then you tell them what they need to hear, and then because they're paying attention, they know what to do. I believe this is what Job is wanting of his friends. It's also a possibility that what's happening here, that Job here in this request, he's wanting his friends to believe him. He's saying, in essence, look me in the eye and examine my face. Examine my countenance. Because you can usually tell right if a person is lying from their face. Only the boldest liar will straight to your face lie with a straight face. Usually there's some indication that a person is lying from the body language of their face, maybe a blinking of their eyes or a looking away or a a blush of the cheeks. And so Job is calling upon his friends to have an honest conversation with him. He senses that they are not believing him when he tells them that what is happening to him is not punishment for some gross sin or sins in his life. And so he says, look at my countenance. Give me your best shot at a lie detection test. I'm an open book. Examine me. Look me straight in the eye and ask me questions. Teach me. Observe my reactions. You will see that I am being sincere. And as Job goes on to explain his request, he makes clear that he doesn't want to be misjudged on the basis of a hasty investigation. What is at stake is serious. If things are not handled well, injustice might take place. Job states the matter this way. My vindication, literally, he's talking about his righteousness. My righteousness is at stake. His request then becomes a request that they please turn, verse 29. Please turn, he says. Please don't keep going down the path you are going with your face pointed forward where you're determined to push ahead, but please look back and reconsider. Please do not regard my case as settled. Please do not think that all of the evidence has come in and that there's nothing more to discuss. Please turn. And Job explains why he refers to injustice or iniquity being done. The Hebrew word is Depending upon the context, usually translated as one of these words, injustice or iniquity. What does he mean? What's his concern? 
Well, Job is explaining why they should turn back. It's a matter of avoiding injustice or sin. Perhaps it's wrong, um, his friends feel it's wrong to even review his case. And if that's the case, Job could be here saying something like, let it not be considered iniquity. Please turn and let it not be considered iniquity to do so. In other words, Job is making an appeal, let it not be considered any kind of injustice to turn and continue hearing my case. Please don't consider it a matter of injustice or sin to reconsider what's happening to me. Or perhaps the idea is please turn for there is no iniquity being done. In other words, you will find upon further investigation that there is no iniquity in my case. If you will consider, uh, reconsider and stop unjustly assuming that my sentiments are erroneous and my heart evil, you will realize that these charges against me that you have raised are false. Or Job may be calling his friends to action as the ESV seems to have it. Let no injustice be done. Or don't treat me unjustly. Don't charge me with iniquity. Or let there not be any iniquity. In other words, don't continue down this path of unjustly accusing me of sin. Don't charge me with sin, because if you do this, you will be allowing injustice to take place. And so for Job, this is very serious. He, he, he views his situation such that there, there is a lot at stake. We may be inclined to tell Job if we could something like, you just need to ignore these friends and just leave them to their foolishness. But Job sees the big picture of what their accusations mean if they are correct. And what is at stake is his righteousness. The ESV has Job saying, my vindication is at stake. Well, vindication is the translation of the Hebrew word for righteousness. And righteousness is the state of being vindicated before God, the state of being declared innocent in his sight. And this vindication before God of being declared righteous in his sight, that's at the very heart of the gospel and salvation. This vindication is what Christ, in fact, has earned for us through his death on the cross. This vindication is something that happens at the moment of faith when God declares your sins forgiven on the basis of Christ, his payment of the penalty of your sin through his suffering and death on the cross in your place. And as soon as you, by faith, are connected to Christ, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. You are then justified or vindicated in the court of God's justice as a person innocent of any sin. Talking about a vindication that takes place in the courts of heaven and a vindication that we also experience by a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the Holy Spirit assures us that the gospel of salvation in Christ is real, that there is forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. And of course, there's the vindication that will take place in a public way at the return of the Lord Jesus when he declares his redeemed people, when he declares those who have repented of their sins and who have put their trust in Christ to be his own. And he declares them to be forgiven. He will declare you to be redeemed, worthy of eternal life, set free from all condemnation under the law, worthy of the rewards of grace. And so for Job to say his righteousness or vindication is at stake should tell us that what's going on, what's, what's going on here is no small matter. If his friends are 
questioning or discounting his vindication, they are assaulting his faith. They are assaulting his salvation. It's not simply that his friends are cruel and merciless based on their lack of tact. The, the problem is not primarily that they are not correctly assessing what is going on in his life and failing to give him comfort. They are actually stripping him or trying to strip him of the most important thing of all, which is his relationship to God. And Job is correct in his assessment of his interactions with his friends. His salvation is at stake. And I take this to be a warning. If not a direct warning, it's at least an implied warning and one that we need to keep in mind in our interactions with other believers we must be very careful of accusing professing believers of things that would be incompatible with them being believers. And what Job's friends were saying was that Job was being punished for sin in his life. And the problem as they see it is that he's refusing to repent of sin and God is angry. God is punishing him. Meanwhile, Job is insisting that he's not hiding sin. He's not holding on to sin. He's right with God. Not only is he righteous in God's sight by faith, but he's living in close fellowship with God by keeping tabs on the sin in his life. He's serious about living a holy life. He's readily repenting of sin in his life. And that's not just Job's opinion. That's God's opinion. That's what it means when God says Job is blameless and upright. But for Job's friends to insist that he is being punished because he's refusing to repent of sin is essentially saying he's acting like an unbeliever. And over against that attitude and perspective, Job tells his friends, turn now, my vindication is at stake. In other words, you need to retract your charges. You need to be open to further investigation about what's going on because if you insist on holding this opinion about me, you're, you're, you're really saying I'm not a believer. And that is not an accusation that is to be made against any professing believer without the utmost care and concern. It's such a serious accusation that you'd better be right. And in fact, Matthew 18 says that it's the church through its leaders that can declare a person to be as a Gentile and tax collector, that is, as a sinner outside of salvation. This is not a matter of private judgment, such as could properly be made by Job's three friends, as wise as they think they are. They need to be much more careful in their assessment of Job. And as Job closes up his request in verse 30, he asserts in one final thrust what is at stake. He says, is there any injustice on my tongue? He's, he's pushing them to come up with unveiled accusations of sin. There have been plenty of veiled accusations. He's saying, come out in the open with your accusations. What have I said that's sinful? What have I said that's untrue? You need to tell me if you can. And what is implied is that he's willing to stand up to their investigation because he knows where he stands with God. He knows he's not being chastened. He knows he's not being punished for some particular sin. And so he prods his friends to think about it. He's the one who's experiencing the calamity. He's the one who knows his own heart. And so he asks the rhetorical question, cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? I don't know if you caught this, yet another reference to food and to taste. Back in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6, Job asked the, the, these questions can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? 
Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. And so he sees his experience of calamity as analogous to yucky, slimy food that's hard to get down. Maybe perfectly good food, but it's not enjoyable to eat. And people react accordingly, and what do they do? They try to make food taste good by adding salt, or with truly yucky foods, they want nothing to do with them. They won't even touch them. And this is analogous to how what Job is going through may ultimately be good, according to God's plan, but it's still hard to stomach. Suffering is something that people, when they go through it, they want to see it change. They want things to turn around. They, they want some salt to be added. They want to, 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 to turn this into something enjoyable, they want, or they want to stay away from it altogether. Now in verse 30, he seems to be taking up the same figure as he refers to a sense of taste or to his palate, as the ESV puts it. But there's a difference this time because the taste is not about experiencing good or bad circumstances, but rather about the cause of his calamity. And what comes across as a bad taste in his mouth is that he knows his afflictions are undeserved, at least in the sense that they are not being sent against him in wrath and for particular sins. Like a palate that can discern between sweet and sour and salty and bitter, Job is claiming the ability to discern what's going on with the calamity that he's been sent. Or perhaps it would be best to understand him as saying that he knows the cause is at least not what his friends say. He may not, and I would argue he doesn't totally understand the nature and purpose of the calamity that he's going through as it from God's perspective, but he is at least able to discern that his friends are wrong. He's very well aware of the normal ways of thinking in his day about calamity, the the thinking that's been presented by his friends. But knowing his own heart, knowing how he has conducted himself in life, he knows they are wrong. It's important for you and me to realize the wisdom of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read these Words from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5, where the Apostle Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Job's friends do not know Job like Job knows himself, but of course, ultimately, God knows Job. God knows Job even better than he knows himself. And your friends don't know you like you know yourself and as God knows you. And you do not know other people as well as you may think you do. But isn't it wonderful to know that despite how your friends may misunderstand you and misjudge you, God knows the truth. And it's our standing with God, not with other people, that matters. To know that God knows what's going on in your heart and life. And to be comfortable with that, that's freedom. To know that God knows what's going on in your heart and life. To know that God loves you. And to know that you, in return, love him 
that you want to please him, that you've confessed your sins, and that you've been forgiven in Christ, that is freedom. And that is a freedom that no one can take away. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise you as a God who is all-knowing, omniscient, infinite in knowledge. Thankful, Father, that you know us, you know the circumstances of our lives, you know the injustices, the, the misinterpretations, the misunderstandings. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to be good friends who are a true source of comfort to those who are hurting. Lord, give us the wisdom to say the right things. May we be good listeners. May we be careful in our judgments. And thank you, Father, for salvation. We thank you for righteousness, for this vindication that is ours in Christ. And we thank you that this relationship with you is one that no one can take away. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of the fact as we go through life that you are our judge. May we be comfortable with that because we recognize that we are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, Father, we pray that even as people judge us, we pray that we would recognize that the judgment that only really matters is yours. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.